We are in Revelation chapter 8, so if you grab a Bible from the seat back in front of you, uh, it is page 1032, Revelation chapter 8, and the question, the overriding question today is what moves the sovereign hand of history? What moves it? As a child, uh, growing up, every now and then I would do something wrong. Not very often, but just every now and then. And uh, my father sometimes would observe, you know, that naughty little action of mine. And then he would just be quiet. And in his quietness, I'd be thinking, hmm, I wonder if he actually saw me. Why is he so quiet? Is he just thinking about the level of punishment that I'm going to receive? Should I start to plea for mercy? Could it be that I'm actually going to get away with this one? Silent. Why would God our Father be silent? Let's go to the Scriptures. Uh, Revelation chapter 8, verse 1. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. So the opening of the seventh seal, it has been delayed by the interlude that we talked about last week in Revelation chapter 7. Pastor Willie preached a great message on chapter 7. If you didn't uh, get a chance to to be here, then go online and watch that. There in chapter 7, we see the sealed people of God. Now with the opening of the seventh seal, the scroll lies open and all of heaven is quiet for 30 crawling minutes. John writes the phrase, then I saw. That signals something new and he sees seven angels standing in God's presence and they have trumpets and they're ready to blow them. But there's silence. Why the silence? If you were with us when we talked about the seals, you know, it's one dramatic event after another, just rolling along, all kinds of drama, and all of a sudden, silence. Why? One of the members of our our staff team said to me this week, Ray, you should just be quiet for 30 minutes. (laughs) 30 minutes, just silence. The prophets Zechariah, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, they talk about God's people needing to be silent before God when he is coming to judge. Is that what is in view here? Is the silence just anticipation of impending judgment? Let's keep reading. What happens in the silence? Verse 3. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. So, what we see here is God's heavenly temple, a picture of God's heavenly temple. There's an angel standing at the golden altar. He's before the throne of God. He has a golden censer. If we go back to the temple on earth in Jerusalem, there were two altars. In the courtyard, there was a bronze altar. Animal sacrifices were made on that altar. And then if you entered into the temple proper in the um, holy place, you would find a golden altar, the altar of incense. 
right before the veil that would lead into the most holy place. And so the altar of incense before the mercy seat of God. Animal sacrifices were made on the bronze altar. Incense offerings over here on the altar of incense. Richard Bauckham, when he talks about the morning sacrifices that were made, he's a, a New Testament scholar. He writes that there was about an half an hour of silence during the morning sacrifice. Priestly offerings made in silence. One more background point. The Day of Atonement in Leviticus chapter 16. A goat was sacrificed on the bronze altar as payment for sin. Payment for the sin of the people of Israel. A goat was sacrificed and another goat was set free. Set free to go into the wilderness. Symbolizing the removal of sin. Blood was then taken from the bronze altar and it was sprinkled on the altar of incense and that incense would then rise before the most holy place symbolizing the prayers of God's people. It was a day of cleansing, a day of forgiveness. And the silence of that offering was broken with the blowing of trumpets. So John, in heaven, he sees one heavenly altar. That one heavenly altar, it fulfills the functions of both altars on earth. There's incense rising from the hand of the angel. Incense, the prayers of God's people rising before the one who sits on the throne, rising before the little lamb in the middle of the throne, the one who had been slain but now is standing, rising before the seven spirits of God, the Holy Spirit sent out, in, out into all the earth. And in the stillness, in the stillness of that moment, the prayers of God's forgiveness given people rising to the throne. Rounds and rounds of eternal worship. Chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation, we saw oh, the whole redeemed people of God praising God. The whole angelic force, thousands and thousands of angels worshiping. Now, quiet. Thousands upon thousands of followers of Jesus slain for the cause of the gospel, being remembered. Millions and millions of prayers rising before the throne, remembered. Beasley Murray, commentator on the book of Revelation, writes, The significance of this picture can hardly be overestimated. No one was more aware than John of the limitations to what individual men and women can do to change the course of history and to bring in the kingdom of heaven, particularly in the face of the cosmic forces against them and the transcendent character of the kingdom itself. But we can pray to him who has almighty power, and it would seem that God has willed that the prayer of his people should be part of the process by which the kingdom comes. The interaction between the sovereignty of God and the prayers of the saints is part of the ultimate mystery of existence. So the early church, it didn't have political power, it didn't have voting power, it didn't have money, it didn't have social standing, but it had knees bowed in prayer. So first point in your outline, know that prayer moves the sovereign hand of history. Prayer moves the sovereign hand of history. The book of Revelation, it begins with prayer. It ends with prayer. It begins with John, the Apostle John, on the island of Patmos. And he's there, he's exiled, he's forgotten, he's isolated, he's imprisoned, he's powerless, dehumanized. But on the Lord's day, he is in the Spirit. 
He is worshiping. He is praying. Revelation chapter 4, beginning of Revelation chapter 4, again, we see the Apostle John in the Spirit, worshiping, praying. And while he's worshiping and praying, he's gifted with visions of the throne. John, powerless, exiled, but as he's in the presence of God, God is speaking, God is summoning, God is commanding, God is blessing. John didn't receive what he received on the Lord's Day because he'd gone fishing. Not that fishing is a bad thing. He also wasn't playing hockey. He wasn't playing video games. The point being that he was ready to receive. He had prepared his heart in worship and prayer, and in that moment, the Lord revealed to him what we read in the book of Revelation. He was in the Spirit, ready to receive. He knew that he couldn't do anything He was exiled, but God could do everything. And as he focused his eyes on the throne room of God, he received 2020 vision. Revelation chapter 5 the four living creatures, the 24 elders, the whole redeemed people of God are there prostrate before the throne. They have harps, worship. They have golden bowls of incense, the prayers of God's people, worship and prayer. And they sing a new song. Revelation chapter 6, with the opening of the fifth seal, John sees the altar and the blood of the saints running to the bottom of the altar and the souls of the martyrs crying out, God, how long? As the four horsemen run across the face of the earth, their blood, the blood of the martyrs, it runs down to the base of the altar and they cry out with a loud voice what we read in chapter 6, verse 10. O sovereign Lord, holy and true, How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? God, how long? How long will you allow this resistance to your ways across the earth? Lord, you're sovereign over all of history, of everything in your hands. When will you vindicate your people? God, your judgments, they're holy, they're just, they're true. But when will you exercise justice? It's a prayer of lament. Do you know that 45% of the Psalms are prayers of lament? Lament, it's that honest expression of pain, of grieving, of disappointment, even anger. Lament, it's not theoretical prayer, it's real experience prayer. It's you facing concrete circumstances. Something is wrong, and you cry out and say, God, how long? comes from the heart. And so I believe what we see as we look at the book of Revelation here, as we read through the Psalms, God wants us, when we are in pain, when we are suffering, to come before him with all that we are, just as we are. And as you read through the Psalms, you see that as the psalmist laments, he often ends those prayers with times of worship, expressing deep faith, deep hope in God with a renewed courage because he's been before the throne of God. You see, in our age, when we see the ugliness of war and injustice around us, God doesn't expect us to act like it's okay. When our families are suffering, there's family breakdown and there's troubles in the workplace or we're disturbed by what's happening in Canadian culture, God doesn't expect us to just be apathetic and say, it's okay. He expects us to cry out, God, how long? 
the martyrs are told to wait a little longer. Chapter 6, verse 11. Until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. The Father in His sovereign timing will vindicate His children. Every moment in Revelation's drama is bathed in prayer. From beginning to end, every moment in Revelation's drama bathed in prayer. Back to Revelation chapter 8. The prayers of God's people are rising before the throne as incense. There's silence. Silence. Prayer rising. Sweet aroma of incense for half an hour. Where are your prayers, the prayers that you prayed this week? Where are those prayers that you've been praying for the people that you love for years, sometimes for decades? Do they just go up into space, lost, forgotten, ignored? Is is God like some of the people that we try to talk to? You know, they're distracted, they're preoccupied, their lives are noisy, there's TV and songs and smartphones and videos, and they're just tuned out. Is it that way when we pray to God? Millions of prayers just somewhere out in space, forgotten? Revelation 8 tells us that God listens, that God's actually attentive that those prayers remain before him. They're treasured in golden bowls of incense. He knows our every thought, every cry, every feeling, every wrestle, every stammering attempt to pray. And when we don't know how to pray, the the Holy Spirit intercedes for us in words, or in groanings too deep for words, Romans 8 says. So do your prayers change things? Is there power in your prayer? James 5.16, the prayer of a righteous man is person, righteous person is powerful and effective. And in James chapter 5, James writes that Elijah was like one of us. The prayers of a righteous person is powerful and effective. So often we feel like John, we feel like we're alone. We feel like we're the victim of our circumstances. We feel disempowered, but God listens. And in the waiting silence, God hears our prayers and he prepares for action. He not only hears, he prepares for action. Look at the dramatic scene in verse 5. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. The golden censer, it's filled with fire from that altar. That same altar in which the prayers of the saints are burning and rising as incense. Fire from that altar is thrown toward the earth. Those prayers entrusted to God for eternity, now re-entering history to effect change. The great poet George Herbert, reflecting on this passage, called it reverse thunder. So our prayers going to God and God responding to our prayers and executing justice. Craig Keener, in his commentary in Revelation, writes, God is sovereign, but in his sovereign plan, he has chosen to make the prayers of his people part of the exercise of his will. God's plan is secure and is advanced in his sovereign will through the prayers of his people. 
So prayer isn't just some mystical escape. No, it's the way that you actually engage in what's happening in the world. If you want to engage in the lives of the people around you that you love, if you want to really engage in the future of your family, if you want to engage in the workplace, in the future of this nation, get on your knees and pray. That's the way that we participate in doing God's will. Our cries, often so limited in vision. Our prayers, sometimes so poorly worded. Feeble prayers. But they're mixed with the incense of heaven. And they rise to the throne of God and they return with incredible force. God executes judgment and overcomes evil in response to prayer. That's the message of the vision in chapter 8. God executes judgment and overcomes evil in response to prayer. The end of verse 5. There were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Whenever we read that language in Scripture, whether it be here in Revelation or way back at the time of the Exodus, before Mount Sinai, what we are to understand is the one who is inviting us to look, the one who is inviting us to contemplate the throne. He is holy. He is majestic. He is awesome. He is powerful. And he and he alone has the right, every right to judge and overcome evil. Know that God has every right to judge and overcome evil. We must not play games with God because when we are before God, we are before sheer greatness and power. Verse 6. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. We see something very similar in the prophet Joel. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. In Revelation chapters 8 and 9, the blowing of the trumpets, they are warnings of impending judgment in response to the prayers of God's people. So let's look at the trumpets. Chapter 8, verse 7. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise, a third of the night." The first four trumpets, they sound in rapid succession, fiery devastation descending from the altar of God in response to the pleas of God's people for justice. Now, we need to note something here. If you've been reading through the book of Revelation, there are seven seals, there are seven trumpets, there are seven bowls. And the question, of course, is, is all of this just happening in chronological order? Is the first seal the first thing that happens and the last bowl the last thing that happens? Well, John, as he writes Revelation, he describes what he sees next, not what happens next. G.K. Beale, commentator in Revelation, writes, For example, if the earth, sun, moon, and stars have been completely destroyed in the sixth seal, chapter 6, 
Their partial destruction in the first and fourth trumpets, chapter 7, must precede that complete destruction. So the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls, they are layers of the same events. The first four seals, they show God in his sovereignty, executing judgment through human powers. The first four trumpets show God in his sovereignty, executing judgment through the forces of nature. The first four bowls will impact the same spheres that have been impacted by the first four trumpets. So let's look at those first four trumpets in a little more detail. As you read through the trumpets, you just see allusion after allusion to the exodus, to the plagues of the exodus. The first trumpet and the following judgment. So the first trumpet, hail, fire mixed with blood. Very similar to the seventh plague. Thunder, hail, and fire. The second in the following trumpet. Mountain, burning with fire, thrown into the sea. Sea becomes like blood. Very similar to the first plague. Water turned into blood. The third trumpet in the following judgment. A star falls from heaven and a third of the rivers, a third of the springs of water, and the water becomes bitter. Very similar to the desert experience of the people of Israel after crossing the Red Sea, the bitter waters of Mara. The fourth trumpet and the succeeding judgment. Sun, moon, and stars darkened. Very similar to the ninth plague. Pitch darkness. So what would John, the Apostle John, And his first readers, what would they have understood reading this passage? Wes Olmsted, professor at Briarcrest, writes, The plagues that follow the first four trumpet blasts signal Yahweh's, God's, sovereign defeat of all powers that would set themselves against him and his people, chiefly Rome herself, who stands where Egypt and Babylon once stood. So those reading this passage in the first century, they would have understood, oh, God judged Egypt, God judged Babylon, God will judge Rome as well. Albert Toynbee, he's a a British historian, and he's written a massive work, 12 volumes, which I read in preparation for this message. No. (laughs) But I did go back to it, and it's a study of history. And Albert Albert Toynbee, he talks about 23 civilizations uh, throughout history that have been birthed, risen, grown, dominated, and then collapsed. So what we understand looking at at the four trumpets here is that just as God has judged civilizations in the past, he will judge civilizations in the future. And so if we are a part of, uh, you know, North American culture and we see moral apostasy and there is no revival, no return to God, what should we expect that God will do based on what he has done in history? God will judge every person, people, group, and nation opposed to him. Can we be sure? Well, if we read the New Testament, we see that the destruction of Jerusalem, the raising of the temple in Jerusalem, which was one of the wonders of the world in the first century, those things are predicted in the New Testament. The fall of Rome is predicted in the New Testament. And all of those things happened. The New Testament also predicts that the church of Jesus Christ will persevere. It also predicts that the people of Israel will remain. Both church and Israel remain. 
Now imagine living in the first century. Rome is powerful. They dominate the known world. Wealthy, strong. And then there's the fledgling church. <laughs> Little house churches. And so from a human perspective, if you were looking at that, what would you predict? What's going to last? Well, Rome. And God says, no, Rome will not last. Rome will fall. And the church, my church, I will build it, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so we see the church worldwide today. The kingdoms of our day will also be judged. The four, first four trumpets signal that in judgment God is preparing for the ultimate exodus of his people. What a word of hope. And so just as the people of Israel were released, freed from slavery in Egypt, we, the church, will be freed of all pain and suffering when the ultimate exodus happens, which is the coming of Jesus Christ. That is our hope. And that hope is as sure as Jesus' first coming. Why does God only judge a third? Did you notice that? A third, a third, a third. First trumpet, a third of the earth, trees, green grass. So there will be shortages of food from the land. Second trumpet, a third of the sea bloodied, a third of sea creatures, a third of all ships. So shortages of food from the sea, commerce disrupted. Third trumpet, a third of the rivers and springs of water embittered, so water shortages. Fourth trumpet, a third of the sun, moon, and stars darkened, so basic needs, sources of food, drinking water, uh, natural light, severely affected. The trumpets, what they reveal is that God is attentive, that he's present, that he's holy, and that he's bringing just punishment on a rebellious world. But the judgments aren't final. They're not complete. And when we read a third, that spells mercy. God is judging so that people might turn, repent, turn to him, and be saved. So God's partial judgment, it demonstrates mercy, and it warns of final judgment. In these judgments, God is just shaking people of their earthly security, saying, wake up. Every time we see a hurricane, a tornado, water pollution, plant disease, any kind of natural disaster, we should remember that this earth is not our home. Wake up. Natural disasters are simply God's finger pointing to the end of all things. This earth is not forever. Wake up. Here's an example. In the spring of 1999, a swarm of tornadoes swept across Oklahoma. 40 tornadoes in 20 hours. One tornado, the wind of one tornado was clocked at 512 kilometers per hour, the strongest wind ever recorded in history. Usually a tornado lands on the ground and it remains for a few minutes. One tornado stayed on the ground for four hours. So when something that unusual happens, 40 powerful tornadoes in 20 hours, those living in Oklahoma should wake up. That's the message. Michael Wilcock has written this. Let it never be said that God has not done all in his power, even to the devastation of his own perfect earth, in order to bring men and women to their senses. God's delay in executing final judgment is mercy. 
It reveals God's desire that all come to repentance. God's patience is grace, not indifference. And so in light of this, how should we live? What should we do? Well, first of all, just live in light of God's attentive presence. God is present. He is attentive. He is with us. We should confess anything that goes contrary to the will of God. Any form of idolatry. Any form of self-idolatry. Any kind, any hint of apathy. Hint of complacency in our, our worldly routines. Us just living as if it will just go on forever as it is. Confess our judgments on God's patience. Sometimes people will say this. Uh, boy, when I get to heaven, I'm going to tell God a thing or two. Oh, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask him to explain this. No! <laughs> that scene will never come to pass. Because if you are in heaven before the throne of God, you will be prostrate, silenced. Not arguing with God, raising a fist. How could you let this happen? All human presumption will be silenced. So we are to live lives of confession, of repentance. The harsh realities of history, they remind us that this world is not forever. The ongoing natural disasters, they remind us that this earth is not forever. Wisdom would lead us to get on our knees and pray. We're called to be a house of prayer for all nations. We celebrate what we've seen in the prayer summits over the last number of months. We celebrate the fact that Pastor Jordan has trained over the last month 300 people for prayer. We celebrate that. We are all to be worshipers and, pray, and prayer warriors. If, if you're reading through the book of Revelation, one of the things that definitely is to mark all of us, the church, the people of God, is that we are to be a people of worship and prayer. People who live in light of these visions of, of Revelation, these visions entrusted to the Apostle John, they get on their knees in prayer. You know, in the first century, there were massive engines of persecution and scorn arrayed against the fledgling Christian church, and they didn't have any political power. They had no voting rights. They had no money. They had no social standing. But they could get on their knees in prayer. Why didn't they give up? Why didn't they just throw in the towel? Because they banded together in prayer. They prayed for each other. They prayed for their friends, for their families, for their cities, for the Roman Empire. They pleaded for mercy on behalf of those that did not know Jesus. And so we are called to live a life of prayer and intercession. It's prayer that moves the sovereign hand of history. When I was in university, a book came out. Operation World. This is the seventh edition. <laughs> First edition came out in the late 70s, early 80s. And prayer was mobilized for the world. Prayer was mobilized for the Muslim world. The Muslim world stretches from West Africa all the way to Indonesia. One in five people on earth call themselves Muslim. Islam was birthed around the year 600 with the prophet Muhammad. Over more than a thousand years, we didn't see one movement 
to Jesus among people that confessed the faith of Islam. Not one. A movement is defined in this way. Um, 100 new churches and 1,000 newly baptized believers over a 20-year period. So not one movement until the end of the 19th century, the first movement in the Muslim world. In the 1980s, prayer was mobilized, strategic prayer for the Muslim world. In the last 20 years of the 20th century, we saw 10 movements to Jesus in the Muslim world. Now in the last 20 years, so we're in 2020, over the last two decades, we've observed 118 new movements to Jesus in the Muslim world. Now that is the sovereign hand of God on history, things happening in his timing, but also God's people around the world praying for the Muslim world. And things that we have not seen in all of Christian history are happening today. Many believe that the fastest growing church in the world is the church in Iran. Why is that happening? The Iranian people have been dispersed all over the world. Iranians in Malaysia, in Turkey, in Canada, all over the place. And wherever they are, you hear stories of Iranians coming to faith in Jesus. It's a miraculous story. Through friendship, through the internet, through dreams, for visions, God calling people to himself in response to prayer. Prayer moves the sovereign hand of history. Prayer rises to the throne of God as incense. And the Father listens, and in his justice and mercy, he responds. Samuel Chadwick, Chadwick, Methodist minister, has written, Satan dreads nothing but prayer. His one concern is to keep the saints from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil. He mocks our wisdom. But he trembles when we pray. So if you're seeking to be strategic or effective, then get on your knees in prayer. Pray. It's prayer that changes things. It is prayer that moves the sovereign hand of God in history. It's prayer that moves God's hand in your family. Get on your knees and pray. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Amen? Amen. Let's stand for prayer. So, Father, we, we come before you, we humble ourselves before you, and we just acknowledge again that you are God and only you are God. And you are sovereign over all of history. You have it all in your hands. And at the same time, you're personal. You know the name of each person present here. And you know our story. And you're present to hear our prayers. Each cry, each groan, each prayer prayed for mercy, for help, for healing, for direction. Thank you, Father, that you're attentive. Thank you that we can enter your presence because of Jesus. Jesus, we thank you for opening the way into the Father's presence. Thank you, Father, that you receive us as your children. Thank you for sending your Holy Spirit to abide in us. 
Lord, we confess that we are so short-sighted, so self-centered. We lack faith. We sometimes are prayerless. We doubt. We're confused. Forgive us. Oh, God, make us a people of worship and prayer. Gift us with your heart. Help us to see ourselves the way you see us. Help us to see our families the way you see them. Help us to see our friends, our colleagues at work, this nation, the way that you see these things, Lord, these people that you love. Oh, God, may we be people of prayer. We pray for revival in our nation, but may revival begin with us, God. As we humble ourselves before you and confess and repent, oh God, we pray for the healing of our nation. We also pray for Iran's, where so much has happened in recent days, and we pray that those who have lost loved ones, that they would continue to receive your comfort. We pray for your protection over the Iranian church, that it would continue to grow in, in knowledge, in maturity, in love, most of all, in love for you and one another. We pray, Lord, for the church in China. And in this moment of suffering in China, may your church present there, Lord, be your ministers of comfort, interceding for their nation. We pray for China, Lord. We pray for those that are infected with the virus. We pray for their healing. We pray for those who have lost loved ones. May they be comforted, O God, by you. Lord, may we be a people of worship and prayer. May your kingdom come in our day. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you.